Welcome back to Project Geospatial. I'm Adam Simmons, and this is our Government Spotlight. In this special segment, we have the honor of interviewing the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency's Director of Research, Dr. Sydney Daniel. In our interview with Dr. Daniel, we will explore her background, what it means to be the Director of Research at NGA, and discuss some of the projects being worked on. Additionally, we will learn more about what's ahead. Let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your background and where you got started. Okay, so I've spent most of my career out in private industry, actually. And I, all of my degrees are in EE, that's electrical engineering. So when I first started at my very first junior engineering job, I was with Hughes Research Labs. So this is kind of a boutique little research um, house on the West Coast. And I was put onto what they call DARPA programs. So I did all of my work uh, performing for these DARPA contracts and DARPA programs. And then I uh, got the, the, ins the instinct and the inspiration to actually go to DARPA following my stint out in private industry. So I went there next, which is a little bit of government service, but it's in a very unique uh, part of government. Following that, I went back out to uh, private industry, a little boutique research place known as SRI. And they're based in San Francisco, again, back in California. But I was able to stay here in D.C. and support them. And I was there for a few years back in private industry. And then I saw this job open at NGA, and I was inspired to come back into government again and go into NGA. So my background really is, inside of it, electrical engineering is pretty broad spectrum, but I uh, really focused on image processing, computer vision, and all of that analytical type of work. Then with the, um, with the uh, advent at that time, it wasn't called AI, though, I have to say. AI was a dirty word then. And now um, we've come through full cycle that there's another wave of this same type of deep learning, which they now call AI. But that was my background. And so that's how I got very interested in this job. How did you transition from electrical engineering to the geospatial industry? Um, so it was really more in the image part. I really became more inspired by the geospatial part really in this job, if you, um, to, to answer your question directly. But the, uh, the image processing computer vision part of it is such a big part of the workflow in geospatial that that's what attracted me. Being able to do all of the, what they call automatic target recognition, be able to figure ground separation, you know, find the target, find the, uh, the, the ability for the human to interact with the imagery and be able to perform at their best using the tools, these automated tools at hand to separate and dissect the image. So all that, even though it's not initially geospatial and the, the true strict definition, it's very much a part of the geospatial workflow. How much of what you've done in your previous roles in the industry have cross-trained and helped you in your current role now? I would say everything, because really the work I'm doing now and throughout your career, what happened to me, was you grow up from a very myopic viewpoint where you're actually creating the code to develop you know, these algorithms and so forth. And then you get to take a little bigger, bigger part of the pie where you're observing your section, but also other people bring the sections in that they're working on. And then eventually you get to the position like I'm in now, or a little bit like I was at DARPA, where you're having to overview all of the technology. So I have to know all of the skill, I have to understand all the skill sets that are brought to the table to understand how the performers, what we call the, the folks that will be providing the products, the capabilities, they're developing those capabilities for us. And at one time I was a performer. I have to understand how they do their job and how well they're doing it. So I really have, having my background helps immensely and it covers all of that. You know the ins and outs. You know how difficult it is. That's how it really prepared me. So that I know that we cannot overnight 
create a, a new R2-D2 that's going to be able to go out and solve all of the world's problems and be able to create um, the, the technologies that are push of a button that we can understand where the adversaries are and be able to, um, you know, to, to target something so specifically that I understand how difficult those challenges are and that it takes you know, a couple of years just to get past one of those little challenges. I would say that's the most important aspect of having worked in the field. So I don't believe a CEO would, should ever be a CEO of whatever industry he's, he or she might be in until they've actually done the work in the field. So they understand how, what the challenges are every day and how difficult it is and, and how to help empathize and grow the staff that are now doing it. Personally, I feel electrical engineering is the most broad of all of the science and tech fields you can go into to be able to do that, to diversify and go in, because you can then go into materials, you can go into image processing like I did. There's a whole variety in electrical engineering. Um, but all of the engineering STEM fields are very good. Physics and math is another one that you can major in that and then go into any of these fields that you find of interest. You could um, you know, stop working at, at NGA, decide you don't like doing this, and go to NSA and work in the signal, the signal field that they have. So yeah, it's very broad. I think all the STEM, all the STEM science technology fields are broad. For your role at NGA, what's it mean to be the director of research? So it means that you have a cadre of scientists, I would say, that are a national treasure, first of all. So part of it means growing that, the skill set of the scientists and making sure that their value is understood by the rest of the ecosystem, by the rest of the national security ecosystem, all of that. That's first and primary, this, the growth of the personnel there that are doing the actual work now amazing talent. And then it also means that you're trying to direct all of that talent, which they generally come from, if not PhD backgrounds, they come from very technical, deep backgrounds where they study new masters or undergraduate in a science field. So it means the personnel that you're growing and nurturing, also growing and nurturing them in a way that they're aligned with mission. So these folks are generally, like I was, very focused on the science aspect of the problem our metrics and the way we graded ourselves and the way we graded our work was really on you know, creating something that uh, could run on a little bit less power or uh, looking at you know, the physics of the situation. And now we're trying to turn them into what we call operational metrics so that they are now focused on solving a problem that the user has. So we, aren't, we are no longer interested in how many watts something is going to be given off, only in how those watts are directly related to the user's if they can see the phone in daylight, if they can see the phone at nighttime, then you've got enough power to be able to do that. But turning them, that's part of it, is turning that culture of, of the science, because you were grown and trained in that science, into something that's operational and aligning everything we do into operations so that we are not seen as just a group of scientists that do science projects. How do projects go from research to operations? So that's quite a challenge. And they start before the idea is even conceived. So when we in research think of an idea, we oftentimes use requirements from the operators and they'll tell us something they absolutely need. Um, but we also sometimes think of something that they may not have thought of because we know how technology is going. Like, I don't think there were very many people in the world that knew they needed an iPhone until Steve Jobs showed them the iPhone. So it's like that. We'll think of things that really could be used in operations that they would have never dreamed of. So before these ideas start, or before we even start working on the requirements, uh, they, we bring the customer in. So that's how it starts. That's how transition works. If you don't do that, you're already at a disadvantage of being able to transition your, your, pro your product. 
So we bring them in early, we talk to them, discuss the idea, discuss the ways that we think technology can help. They help us to frame the problem so that we put it out for competition for um, various people who are performers, like I was at HRL and SRI, to develop ideas to solve the problem. The customer helps us delay that. It helps us to write the, the bride agency announcement to announce that problem. And then when we get the proposals, the customer helps us to vet the proposals, to understand which ones are good at solving this problem, which ones aren't, and help us to understand which technologies have the highest risk factor, et cetera. And then the customer comes with us to the kickoff day when we're, inter when we're interacting with the developers over the three to five year period where they're developing you know, the solution. They come to all of the uh, interim days and throughout they watch and we as a contact sport, I would say transition. We are constantly working with them to understand the use case which changes over the time the technology is being developed and also to understand the technology, how it can change to go with their new use case. So it's, again, contact store. There's a lot of iterations all through those, those years where we're developing the product. And then finally, at that point, you hope you've kept them, you know, lockstep with you, you know, with arms wrapped around your idea. And um, at that point, you pull out the transition technology agreement that I failed to mention, but you had them sign back early in the days of the project. It doesn't have to be signed on day one, but it has to be signed somewhere in the first year and otherwise we, we won't do the work. And this technology transfer agreement allows you to veto and say, oh, we don't need this anymore, but you have to, you know, keep, you have to keep us informed. But if the product becomes available already, what it does is it commits you, the user, the owner of the product, to put in money to help what they call the valley of death, or sometimes we call the ditch of despair, when the product is in beta test form, but it's not quite into the you know, final state where you can shoot it and it still works. So, which is the first thing an operator will do when they take out your product to the field. They'll shoot it and see if it still works. So uh, that stage in between beta and operations, we uh, expect commitment from the user to put in money. That was a long answer to your question, but the technology transfer agreement is of utmost importance. And at the end, you pull that out and you, and you pass it on. While in your role as director of research, what are the biggest struggles, challenges, or stereotypes that you fight? To the stereotypes, I will say something akin to what earlier I mentioned that we're doing science projects, which is absolutely 100% not true. But a challenge is being able to communicate, being able to message what we're really doing into terms that the user, the customer, the layman, the public can understand and not think that we're doing science projects. So it's a challenge with the messaging all the time. So to counter that, we are trying to open our doors more to be able to let the public in and understand what we do. So recently we had an open house this uh, last summer where we, cal we um, uh, pre or sorry, displayed rather, you know, showed off all of the great work we had done both in a classified and unclassified setting. So it was not open to the public. But what it was open to were all of our partners across the government because we're really looking for a whole of government response, a whole of government answer, not to be siloed off into our individual um, agencies. So we had an open house for that. We had an open house for our oversight. The staffers, congressional staffers, came in to see all of the work we're doing, and that's to counter one of our biggest challenges: is that messaging that it's difficult because it's such a usually complicated subject for most people who haven't studied science. They um, they need to be walked through it in a very uh, very uh, simple manner, you know, something that they can understand. So I would say that's more challenging than you might think. The second is the transition. And this also gets to the stereotype that we're doing science, but we're not. We're, we're doing studying something with a metric of working in operations. Uh, the transition part is very challenging. 
I will say resources are challenging in the sense that they are often, they vacillate. They go up, they come down, they go, we just need something steady. So that's a problem in the science field. You know, right now, if there's a big push and there's a lot of money in climate change, you know, the next administration, there won't be. Maybe that's a bad example, but oftentimes science goes in spurts. You know, it's all AI, then AI doesn't work, and then back and forth. And then the last challenge I would say is uh, gathering uh, talent in both cases, uh, in the performers and in talent to work. So the talent to work for us, we have opened up several new hiring authorities that we can use so that you don't have to come in to be a government cadre. You can come in as a highly qualified expert under some special hiring authorities that we have now. We, you can come as an interdepartmental government uh, agent, which is uh, the IPA program. So the HQE program, the IPA program, we're looking to hire experts in both of those. And like I said, you don't have to be in the long-term government um, cadre to do that. The, and they also can help you, they help a little bit with the salaries that we can't always match for private industry and those two, those, two hire, uh, those two vehicles. And then also we have visiting scientists. You can come in in your postdoc work or as a faculty member and spend some time in research so we can groom talent that way. We have a lot of summer intern programs. We have the first HBCU visiting faculty fellowship uh, program that we just started this summer. They come in that way. And lastly, to the talent is the talent to perform the workforce and the develop, because a lot of times uh, agencies, government agencies are myopic in that they tend to work with the same people they may have worked with before. They only work with large industry. So we have many vehicles where we're trying to even the playing field, open up competition to, to everyone. That's our best tool to sustain national security is get that competition with all that talent. Can you describe some of the public-facing contributions NGA Research has worked on or is currently working on? So we do, as you know, a lot of classified work, but approximately one-third of our portfolio really is unclassified and very interesting work for things like climate change and uh, other economic security um, issues that we have at hand. So one that I really like is a tool that's like a Where's Waldo tool. And so you can, we, op- we have so many images on the internet billions of images, right? And many times they have header information which tells you where it was taken, the date stamp and all of that. So you can find the location of the image. But people who are trying to hide themselves don't put all of that on the image, they strip it out. So it's an image and it may be just somebody sitting by a rock and a tree, you know, and there's a mountain in the background. Where was that picture taken? So we have the ability to take any image and within very quickly, just a couple of hours, determine where in the entire world that image was taken. So we call it Where's Waldo. So that's a pretty um, nice tool that we have. We have tools to help with uh, HADAR, which I should say is humanitarian uh, aid and it's, it's assistance and disaster relief, right? Humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. almost forgot the acronym. So we work with that in terms of um, something with the, what we call bathymetry, the coastal line with the depth of the water along the coastal line. So when you have a large storm, that changes very rapidly. You know, dirt piles up and the sandbar shift and things change. So the ships that may come in, have come into port, they know how to navigate into port under regular circumstances. Hurricane Ian hits the next day. How do you navigate to port? So we have a, a remote, we have a tool that can use remote sensing to be able to determine the, the new lay of the land, so to speak, underneath the water. So ships can maneuver now in the next day to get into port, which they used to not be able to. So we have these humanitarian assistance tools. We uh, also, the gravitational model was created by NGA. Many people don't know that. 
but the phone that you have that, that carries around has your compass and has the maps on the phone and uh, can provide also your GPS when you're trying to, to navigate where you are. That gravity model was designed by, by NGA in conjunction with Ohio State University and NASA. So we put that together and it's one of the responsibilities of NGA on a day-to-day -day basis. And they use it now in commercial and the commercial phones. Can you go into detail what the gravity model is and why it's so important? So it helps to understand it's called what they call positioning, navigation, and timing, or what in the industry we call P&T. So to understand your location on Earth, you need a reference model. So the gravitational model is a, a model that covers the entire Earth, and it provides the reference, your frame of reference, for where you are in space. And that's how it can give you directions to go to the coffee house that you want to go to. Because if it doesn't know where you are in space, it can't provide those directions. Your phone, the map on your phone, Siri. So that algorithm is first checking with the gravity model to understand where you are in space. And then it knows from its maps where the coffee house is, and then it provides you those directions. What are you doing with AI and ML as it relates to maritime bathymetry? So AI and ML is a big part of the bathymetry measurements to be able to understand the coastal variations of the seabed. But we also use it as something um, for navigation. We call it SMAPS. I've actually forgotten what that stands for. But SMAPS is a program that was recently transitioned that um, provides, it uses AIML in terms of what we call natural language processing. So it's not using it for image processing or computer vision, but it's using it to take when um, mariners at sea, they'll send in a narrative of what's happening. So it's almost like open source, the way they're sending in all these reports to our analysts. And our analysts have to take the reports and provide safe navigation for the rest of the mariners. You know, if they run into an outcropping of rock or a disaster of some sort, you know, man overboard, that report comes in and this all gets disseminated out for safety navigation as a whole. So our, NL, our natural language processing is based on AI and ML techniques that uh, takes this unstructured text that comes in to the analyst, you know, lots and lots of text and data. It's like reading an entire newspaper article, right? And uh, what they used to have to do was read all the text, summarize it into a headline, and that was done by human analyst. So, and then they had to leave lots and lots of data on the floor. And sometimes they weren't providing the navigation that was needed to be provided because of that. They couldn't do it all. So our natural language processing takes that data and trunk, or not truncates it, but it divides it up into what's called un to structured text, from unstructured text to structured text, which is effectively a newspaper article into a headline. And we do that now through automation. So when the analyst gets now all these headlines, it's much easier for the analyst to send out um, the, the, where the events are and where the hazards are that need to be watched for. And what they can do is now service so much more. They can take all this information in, whereas they used to have to leave it on the floor. So we're still, the analysts are still very much a part of the, the role. They just can enable them to do more. What projects are you most looking forward to in the near future? Public facing in terms of science, we're really looking into using more open source. It's called OSINT, open source intelligence. So it's anything that resides on a Twitter feed, on uh, um, you know, foreign newspapers, uh, all that kind of open source intelligence. We're looking to incorporate that more and be able to design and solve, design solutions and solve problems, possibly potentially with only open source information. And uh, we're looking forward to the challenge. We've done this once in a prototype beta test, but I'm looking forward to, the, to growing it to more to scale. And that is taking commercial data 
and feeding it in along with our government, you know, high resolution, very high fidelity, rather high fidelity information from the government side, mix and, and combining that with commercial data, putting it through some of the government enterprise pipes that we have and directly out to a user. And we've done that in a very short time frame so far as a prototype that we show that. But bringing that to scale is, is, I'm looking forward to that. Those are both two good, interesting products. And a lot of what we do in research, really, it's not just solving the prototype, but it's bringing things to scale. Like, I'll just go a quick example. When a warfighter's out in the middle of a field, and he wants to know, where is the nearest source of fresh water? You know, he should be able to look on his iPhone, swipe a credit card or something, and, you know, plug in the question, and then, voila, it shows on his maps where the nearest source of fresh water is. Um, but to do that at scale is very difficult. So we work on that problem as well, so that this individual that's in this field could do it simultaneously in Afghanistan with somebody in Korea, with somebody in Arizona. So it can be at scale, literally happening for thousands of people at the same time. And it's a scale analytic of that. What are your favorite success stories that come out of research? Okay, so success stories are things like that are not completed yet. This bathymetry that I was just telling about, we call it SCUBA. Um, the name of the program, the fact that it was able to help after a recent hurricane in Haiti, I'm forgetting the name of the hurricane, so I believe it was last year, and we were help, able to help open the ports for that, and it was still in beta form in our terms of our, um, our work. You know, we haven't completed the product. We still haven't completed and transitioned it. So that was a huge success to think that it actually went and helped people in disaster relief like that on the coastline of Haiti. Then the other one that really warms my heart is I actually can't talk about it, but Ukraine, we're providing a lot of good technology that may be in the beta form, but it has a beta test. That's when a product is almost ready for release, but not quite. So you release it to a limited numbers of, of experienced users. So it's not somebody who's just you know a layman, but the experienced users are beta testing some of our capabilities for the Ukraine mission that we're, we're looking at. So they're analyzing things that are coming out of Ukraine. And um, so that, that's very interesting, intriguing me. I can't talk about what they are. Where physically does the work that research does take place? So NCE stands for National Capital East. We also have a large footprint in National Capital West, which is in St. Louis. So those are the two main campuses that we have. But in addition to that, we have three other uh, smaller branches at different locations. We have one at Dayton, where we have the Air Force, uh, the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is there, so we interact a lot with them. We have several employees there. We have several employees in Denver, where we interact a lot with other IC agencies in Denver. And we have several employees at one more location that I'm forgetting at the moment. But we have a lot of other employees that are singletons. They're embedded around, I think we have seven singletons embedded around the country. For example, we have somebody who's embedded, a solo person embedded at Jayat of South, which is a uh, part of Southcom. And they are, they are embedded, they live there and work there directly with the user. So their research developments can be used um, in their like drug interdiction programs and things like that. We have a singleton embedded in Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas has become a hotbed of innovation for defense and IC technology. They have um, the Capital Factory is there where, they, where a lot of government agencies, we have a seat there and other government agencies have a seat there and a lot of startups. So people are meeting there and learning to collaborate across the government and industry and uh, the University of Texas. Other, other universities bring their staff in there. So Austin is a big hotbed right now where we have somebody located. Uh, several sites where their customers, like Jayat of South, we have one singleton working there, integrating our work. 
at the Space Works at an LA Air Force Base, we have somebody. How will the opening an NCW in St. Louis impact the work that you're doing in research? So we're looking forward. I think it will impact it in that we'll have a large, I'm hoping that the larger ecosystem will grow there in, at NCW so that we will have more performers and so forth, primarily because they're going to have it open. More unclassified work can be done there. It can be where unclassified or public-facing performers and developers can walk right in and be able to interact more freely and openly, which is something I'm looking forward to, is to opening our doors to more uh, to more um, of the ecosystem to come in as performers. We really want to even that playing field and have a large number of participants to compete. I think that's our strongest tool for national security competition. How does the relationship between NGA, industry, and academia function? Yeah, so we have a strong industry engagement team at the agency level that is able to uh, bring, I think they had 200-something companies come in. When a company's interested in NGA, they'll fill out a questionnaire, and then depending on how aligned they are with their mission, uh, this industry engagement team will bring them in and, co- and connect them to the actual user for their technology. So those are more of the, when you're getting to a level of capability that's almost ready, it's, it's ready to be bought off the shelf, so to speak. In research, the way we, indus- we engage with industry is that we have a very speak, we state the problem and we are looking a wide, we throw a wide net to get great solutions to that problem. And that's where we throw across industry, large, small, not, you know, new starters, just started, a nonprofit, academia, et cetera, um, and nonprofits. So we, our most agile vehicle that we have is what's called a BAA, the Broad Agency Announcement. I'm glad you asked me about it because I'm very proud of it that we have it there. And this uh, is a tool, again, we want to even the playing field, open it up to as many players as possible to bring us their great ideas. We put out topics. Uh, sometimes of the year we run what's called an open topic where you just have an idea that you don't know if it's a match or not, you can submit. And we have other specialized times of the year where we specialize unique topics that people can apply to. One of the recent unique topics was on what we call geocog, and that is was exploring the cognition of an analyst as they're interacting with the tools for their workflow. So again, it needs to be that symbiotic relationship between the machine and the analyst. So that program is looking specifically at that. That's closed, but we had some great performance uh, proposals we would have never heard of if we had just if we had been looking at the uh, folks that we were familiar with. So we got um, that through the BA, Broad Agency Announcement. Another great vehicle, we are the only IC agency to use the SIPR program, which is a small business innovation research. So we use the SIPR program quite deftly, I would say, to uh, start new programs, and it's a great tool. So small businesses can apply to that. We have grants for academia or nonprofits. We have um, We do transactions that can be uh, regulated by the by government, which many people like, the larger industry, they're used to that. But many of the new companies don't like that. They want to be able to do what's called other transactions. So that's much easier for a startup or a commercial company that doesn't have all the experience from government. So we can do, all, we're just so wide open now with the ability to reach people. And then finally, that we don't run money through these, but we have tools that you can do prior to getting, a, to you know, working on a contract called a CRADA, a Cooperative Research and development agreement, if I've got that right. Thank you. So the CRADA is between government and another entity like a university or a company. And there we set up uh, where we deliver you know, information to the team in a very unique uh, um, 
area topic uh, where we're giving like data or explaining the problem that we have in this one topic. And then they may take that data and uh, work with it and try to put, try to use their own techniques on that data. So the creative, there's not a money sharing, but it's a nice cooperative arrangement to start to learn and understand the government's problems. We also have EPAs, which are the Educational Partnership Agreement. Those are more suited if you're only academic. And I think I mentioned grants for academia. So those are the primary tools we use to work with industry. What I'm really looking forward to is when we can hold an industry open house. We're hoping in a year we could do that. We held the open house for the full government, and we'd like to be able to do that unclassified only and have you know, performers come in and see that. What is your vision for research in the next year and in the next five years? All right, so in the next year, I would really like to be able to uh, have more of the spotlight on research in terms of the mess of understanding our mission, understanding what we do, that we are not doing just science projects. So get the word out, get the word out that we want business from all of these new novel innovative performers, that we want to work with you and that we're here to serve mission and operations. So that's our, um, our marching for the next year to get that. Uh, within five years, be able to grow it in such a way that we're really partnering purposefully with all of these entities that we can partner with to include international, which I haven't mentioned yet today, but international is a big factor that we can leverage in all the work we do. So within five years, be able to partner purposely, uh, be able to compete agilely and easily. Uh, now, not everybody's familiar with it, but to make it more of an everyday thing that people are, are used to proposing to us and working with us directly. What's also very important to the future of research is that we grow the scientists. So it's a national treasure, what we have at NGA. So I want to make a big shout out to all the scientists at NGA and all of the uh, just support staff that we have as well, not just the scientists, but everybody who makes it happen. We have technical offices, we have mission support office. And I just want them to shine and, real, and everybody to realize what a national treasure it is that we have these scientists to have them be able to support the rest of the whole of government, like I said, not to just work on our own, but to be able to leverage government as a whole. And um, yeah, these scientists are amazing and fantastic. So the five-year stretch goal would be to have more of their work outside of just NGA, but inculcated throughout the whole ecosystem. How is NGA handling the training gaps, knowledge lost as critical personnel retire or transition out to other opportunities? How is research helping to seed the skill sets for tomorrow? Uh, we do have the vehicles that I mentioned called an IPA or an HQE, where we can hire on term. So we can bring somebody in for just a year or two to work these problems. Because the people that you're mentioning are in high demand. They're very unique skill sets. They may not always work at the government salary, all of those things. So this is one avenue to use are those, those vehicles that will help attract them. And part of the attraction is they only have to do it for a year or two because they may want to go and do something else with their lives as well. The other ways we're really doing a lot of outreach into, this is what I'd like to continue in the next five years, but we're starting to do a lot of outreach in STEM down to even the kindergarten level. We just put, along with SOURCE, our partner SOURCE inside of NGA, we put together a program, an entire summer program that goes from K to 20 which means go to kindergarten all the way through graduate degree and their summer camp. So the first time it will happen will be next summer in St. Louis at what they call the Moonshot Labs there. But that's the real answer to the question and long-term strategy for NGA. And research is right in the heart of it, along with source, to grow this, this cadre. 
Dr. Daniel, thank you for your time helping us learn more about you and NGA research. It was incredibly insightful. For those watching, feel free to like, share, and subscribe, and don't hesitate to send us any questions or comments. We'll see you next time. Thank you.